This is Isaac Smith, and you're listening to Next Level E-Commerce Favorites. While I'm busy working on recording new episodes for you, we're taking a break from publishing new episodes. Now, I said in previous episodes I'd be back in October, and then I said November. Uh, Anyway, I've decided that the holiday season, which is what we're entering now, really wouldn't be the best time to publish new episodes, so we're going to move it to January. I hope you guys are cool with that. You can expect great new content then. In the meantime, if you haven't listened to every episode, you're missing out on some great stories. And even if you have, these are worth revisiting, even for me, actually. This episode of Next Level E-Commerce is brought to you by Ian Bond of Professional Website Investors. Ian's been an inspiration to me, which is why he's been on the show three times now. Ian works one-on-one with executives seeking to acquire cash-flowing e-commerce sites through a high-end coaching program with very limited capacity. He has personally acquired over 20 e-commerce sites, so if you want someone with experience to help you acquire your next cash-producing asset, get in touch with Ian at ianbond at professionalwebsiteinvestors.com. Also, He and his buyers from his coaching program are always looking for businesses. So if you're looking to exit your e-commerce business, and I know I've talked with quite a few of you who are recently, get in touch with Ian. He and his group are interested in sites that are established, but are also open to younger sites that are revenue producing, which may or may not meet the criteria for some of the well-known brokers in the space. You know what I'm talking about. Um, So, if you're having difficulty listing on some other uh, brokerage sites or you don't meet the requirements because the site is too new or too small, right? get in touch with Ian. Plus, you can save the broker commission by going direct. Uh, And on a personal note, Ian is the guy that I've been sending people to when they tell me they're interested in selling. This has been true since long before he's been sponsoring. I've been telling people to go to him for years. Uh, So if you're interested, contact Ian directly at ianbond at professionalwebsiteinvestors.com. Now, let's start the show. Today on Next Level E-Commerce. One night I got a phone call and some hackers had found their way in. So we had unencrypted credit card numbers, tens of thousands of them. Mm that have been collected through our shopping cart. You're listening to Next Level E-Commerce. Each week, we feature inspiring stories from entrepreneurs who have taken their business to the next level. They share successes and failures and what kept them going when they felt like giving up. And here's your host, Isaac Smith. Thank you for joining me for episode 11. And I have got a fantastic show for you today. You've heard it said, iron sharpens iron. You've heard other people say, the obstacle is the way. Or, the path of least resistance is a terrible teacher. But what do they all really mean? It kind of sounds to me like they're saying, if you want to come out on top, you got to go through some pain. If you've listened to enough entrepreneur stories, I'm sure you've noticed this pattern. The biggest successes come directly after the biggest failures. The people who make it to the top just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And usually it's the knowledge and skills that are built during those times of struggle that lay the foundation for the next big success. But who wants to hear that? That sounds terrible. I don't want obstacles and struggle. I just want my stuff to work, man. Well, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but from my experience and from talking to lots of others, that's just not usually how it goes. And in this episode, I've got a story for you that you're not going to want to miss. My guest today is Patrick Pittman. When I heard that he started his e-commerce journey in 1996, building a website for an Alabama pecan farm selling gift baskets, I knew I had to talk to him. 
And as the story unfolds, you'll find out that Patrick has faced his share of obstacles. And in fact, I'm not sure I would have made it through what happened to him. But when looking back today, it's hard to see how he'd be able to do what he's doing now, which is serving e-commerce businesses at a really high level, without having built the skills that he did going through that struggle. In our conversation, Patrick and I talk about what it was like when he was going through some of those really dark days and how he was able to push himself through and make it to the other side. So buckle up and get ready for an entrepreneur's story that's going to take you for a ride. You can find links to everything we discuss in our show notes at nextlevelecommerce.co. And don't forget to stick around till the end so you can have your chance to play The Review is Right. And now we're going to join Patrick as he tells us the story of the Alabama Pecan Farm. I joined a company uh, right out of college at the time. I came from Vanderbilt down to Atlanta, Georgia to work for a couple of guys who were supposedly hiring me to work at building up CNN.com. And mm. the, there was the original webmaster and uh, original video producer guy, and they had they basically created CNN.com um, as part of being in the Time Warner organization, you know, and wanted to, well, that precedes Time Warner, but in any event, they had this idea that, you know, the internet and the World Wide Web is going to be a business opportunity. There's going to be companies wanting to take their business online. We think it's going to be big. And I was about ready to go work for CNN, and instead I took a hard right turn into the business side of website development and what became, you know, the online e-commerce world. And the one of the first customers this guy had scrounged up had a a big sort of roadside stand. If you head east, head west out of Atlanta on I-20, you'll get to Priester's Pecans which has this hmm. sort of big front porch, rocking chairs, um, <laughs> all, the, all the fudge you could ever eat, it. and uh, baskets of pecans and all kinds of um, dusted with cinnamon and jalapeno and flavor. So they somehow were persuaded that that e-commerce site was what they needed to do next and get it ready for Christmas. So I, um, I was tasked with figuring out how that could work and also how to talk about it with people who didn't have any context. I mean, you could imagine the kind of people who might have grown up um, with a pecan farm and selling on the side of the interstate. Now, they had right. grown to be a pretty substantial operation. So they had certainly a business savvy, but you couldn't just draw analogies to other things that, I mean, other than, say, a printed catalog. That was what they yeah. also based their business on. And that printed catalog um, now needed to be translated into an online shopping experience where you know, there wasn't many e-commerce software products available at that time. There was, I mean, I think one we chose not to create was um, what ultimately in, in subsequent years became Yahoo Stores, but it wasn't mm. that called that yet. Um, and I didn't know of many others. You know, I think IBM had sort of created a first you know, e-commerce server they were trying to figure out. So we actually created our own and we had to spend time um, working through the different decisions about if someone orders gift baskets for Christmas and they want to ship one to grandma and one to their sister and they're in different states and different shipping addresses, mm -hmm. is it possible to go through one checkout you know, once but ship to multiple destinations? Wow. Um, we tried to figure out you know, what that looked like and how it would be explained. And those are the kinds of sort of fundamentals for e-commerce that we were trying to work through at that time. Yeah. So how did you, so was this uh, early on in your, I guess, your, your career as, um, were you fresh out of college and looking for new jobs or what, 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 and what took you away from CNN to uh, work with this other guy who was doing this? It's got to be weird sounding stuff at the time, right? Yeah. You know, I'd spent, um, yes, my prior couple of years in college, um, building websites and learning what that was. Uh, you know, I originally started building out a site on America Online for <laughs> a, a company nice. in Washington, D.C. Um, mm. And then the 
Netscape browser was coming out and we're trying to figure out what this whole thing was. So I already had an interest and was building web pages at that time. We're just trying to figure out um, what that would look like. And so I just had, I think, an entrepreneurial streak. My grandfather had been an entrepreneur, my parents both. Uh, my mother had created a, a gift business, which ultimately became sort of a wholesale um, gift for Christmas and Christmas ornaments kind of things. Mm. Um, I just had always sort of been comfortable with the idea of being an entrepreneur, I think. So going to work for a big media company or taking, like I said, a hard right turn to a startup business with just a couple of um, guys seemed not so scary to me. And I think uh, I didn't realize how then I would sort of be be sent on that trajectory through various uh, businesses, but always in an online kind of context. Now, you know, more than 20 years later, it's been a real experience to see how in some ways so much has changed and we take so many things for granted about assembling an online business. We can mm -hmm. essentially just provision the services that we need. And that word even, you know, to sign up, have a monthly subscription for pretty much any technical component that you need to drop into your online business is something that we take for granted today. And it's certainly not uh, what we had to grapple with as we're trying to build this, this e-commerce site for this pecan company. Yeah. So it sounds like um, if, if, if I were you, I would have no idea how to go about that, like this gift basket thing. But, but it sounds like you had uh, some experience with your, your parents and grandparents that, and especially you said your, your, your mom was, was doing gift uh, uh, gifts. So the, even that part of it must have felt a little bit familiar to you. Right. Well, I think I think the idea that you make products and you sell them directly is something that has has continued to resonate with me over the years. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things for e-commerce business owners today to really um, pay attention to is are there opportunities for them to introduce products that are exclusively their own, things mm -hmm. that they can create. And it certainly makes a lot of sense to assemble products from different sources and um, and sell them, you know, drop shipping or what have you. But to the extent that I've been able to work with companies that have something unique that they've created, I think it gives a lot of um, resilience to the business, a lot of opportunity to really have a direct one-on-one -on -one relationship with your customer. Um, and, it, you know, it did start in that pecan business. They certainly didn't have anything exclusive because everything was made out of pecans, but, mm -hmm. but they had this... Um, this relationship with their customers one-on-one -on -one, and that extended to the, from the roadside stand on the interstate to the catalog business they've been sending out for years. And they were able to take that, that um, trust that their customers had and translate it into an online platform that was entirely new. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, entirely new. And yet I think by able to just really try and to, to, to build on that trust, they were able to turn the e-commerce business into a substantial sales channel. Um, so awesome. I, I think it, it also taught me, I think, that there's too many times that even um, as new as it was to me at the time, I would lapse into jargon. I would use mm -hmm. phrases like um, CGI. I don't even use that phrase anymore, mm -hmm. but, but there's something about that that takes for granted. People know what that implies. And sometimes you'll do that, hear that today, a more common sort of jargon term would be API. Mm -hmm. uh, and what does that mean? I think itself is a good reminder of that whole project to really slow down and understand how to communicate to people about new opportunities without falling into uh, technical lingo that sort of doesn't get the point across. Yeah. It, it make, makes me think of that. Explain like I'm five. Uh, maybe explain like I'm an Alabama pecan farmer. <laughs> How are you going right. to make this make sense to me? That's right. Um, you know, I also, I think it's also um, a case where what an Alabama pecan farmer sounds like can have stereotypes of sort of mm -hmm. slow. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, are very smart businesses run by people who don't sound um, mm -hmm. like they've just come out of some, uh, with some you know, fancy degree out of a university. It also taught me to really slow down and, and not make assumptions about people yeah. based on how they look or they sound 
um, and recognize there's a lot of intelligence and a lot of capacity that people bring. And just because the technology is new and they're not familiar with, don't make the assumption that that they can't keep up just as fast as long as they, you know, are talked to like um, like a person and and not like a computer or not like a uh-huh. you know a tech techie. Yeah. So uh, that was also important in that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So so how did that go? Um, you you built you built the website. Um, did you have a lot of uh, trial and error trying to get it to work, or were you able to make slow, steady progress? How did that end up working out? Well, you know, I think I guess the one thing I might say is um, I, I I could jump ten years ahead from that, and then ten years later, I was um, building my own e-commerce platform. At that point, I had created a turnkey e-commerce software with hosting, mm-hmm. the shopping cart. Um, this is my own company at this point, and I had a chance to then come back to that same pecan company and help them through that next sort of the second 10 years, a little bit of mm. the business. And I think I would say that um, when I came back to work with them again at that point, there was still a process of trying to, to sort of dial it in. And I think e-commerce has really lends itself to an attitude of optimization, there's yeah. not there's not a sort of like the answer then they've got it because then you know right. Google changes or something else changes that makes it um, I mean expectations about free shipping and Amazon change it the environment mm-hmm. so I think that um, to bring the attitude of of incremental progress is just so important for an e-commerce business that sometimes people might hold out hope for like, oh, they're going to score. Like we're just we're just going to wait for the big time when we really get it, you know, and, and it just turns into an amazing business. And instead, my experience has been, it's a st- slower, more steady process of incremental optimizations, optimizations, mm. and then also keeping the team, you know, because people come and go in a business, and then as your team changes. You need to bring sort of the new people on board in a way that they can also contribute something innovative that you hadn't thought of, but also need to be sort of just brought along to how you do things a certain way. How do you communicate with your customers? Um, how do you publish your blog and your email and newsletter? What's the rhythms that you're bringing into your business? So, I mean, 10 years later for that pecan company, there there was a rhythm about publishing a newsletter and an email. And I think they had started to really appreciate the power of email. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the way that the sort of printed catalog in a previous era had been so reliable, like a steady drumbeat of, of, of postage selling out and orders coming back, um, they had moved and understood now that email was an opportunity to send emails out and get orders back. Mm-hmm. And they really recognized the, the power of that email list. Yeah, it sounds like they were, uh, they had already, like you said, built a lot of trust with their customers. Um, Sounds like they built their, you know, built a brand for themselves. People knew them. And then this is just extending that deeper into, you know, as new people are using new technology to buy, you know, through the Internet, extending that through them and becoming more, uh, more direct and more sort of individualized, I suppose. Or have a stronger connection through email. Yeah, and I think even today, there's opportunities for companies to still go back deep in some postal mailing. I think it's not so much, um, I think it's the more fundamental thing is what's that kind of direct connection that you can have. And mm-hmm. email is one, postal mail even today is is another. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are other opportunities even moving out to things like SMS texting, mobile texting to your customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and e-commerce uh, oriented email marketing company called uh, Clavio is introducing a new SMS texting feature. And mm. we've had a good experience um, with that. So I think whatever the, the method, that direct connection as, say, compared to um, someone following your Facebook page, that's not a direct connection. That's mediated mm. by Facebook. Yeah. And so to the extent you can, you can preserve that one-on-one connection, um, you've got a real asset in a business that you can grow and that you can sell eventually. Yeah. So, uh, what 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 happened after the this 1996 website build? Um, what did you What did you do after that? I'm. 
you you skip sort of 10 years forward and so what what was in that part of the journey well i mean i guess i would say that that what also happened uh, 10 years later this has been 2006 is i had built up an e-commerce hosted turnkey uh, product that would basically take care of the shopping cart the catalog we had a content management system for publishing articles and uh, and I did reach so far as to add an email marketing component to it. And all of those, those sort of software tools were meant to work together in a way that would be a kind of comprehensive product. We called it Total Blue. And hmm. I think what I um, didn't appreciate at the time but would come to very soon was when you, when you reach sort of more than you can sustain – you end up incurring these sort of like shortcuts that you try and take to make it all work. And it sort of ends up becoming um, what you might call a certain debt that you have to sort of go back and fix some of those shortcuts or go back and make sure you can cover all those bases eventually. Mm. And of course, there's never enough time to do that as you get the next customer and new features and new Christmas season. And we found ourselves sort of falling behind a little bit to the point that uh, one night I got a phone call from our system administrator and he said, Patrick, I think something's wrong with our one of our backup servers. Something looks suspicious. Mm. And and that's that's where they get you. Because your backup servers are never given as much attention as your primary servers and um and some hackers had found their way in. So Oh no. Uh, so I had to I had to ask myself, like this this is um this is not just my problem is going to be my customers' problems because on that particular backup server, we had unencrypted credit card numbers, tens of thousands of them mm. that had been collected through our shopping cart, and we weren't fully compliant to what was called the payment card industry data security standard at that time. And our backup environment hadn't fully and definitively you know, encrypted or resolved those card numbers. So I had to ask myself whether I was going to wake up the next morning and call Visa and MasterCard and report our failure to mm. do that and report the the breach into our systems. So wow, that sounds that sounds like a really uh, tough moment. Like I I I could imagine going to full on panic at that point. Well, I think you know. Do you? It wasn't super clear that we had been hacked. I had a you know. Uh, a 25-year veteran as my system administrator on the nighttime shift, and he seemed to think so. He seemed he didn't have like the whole um, case built out as to why we've been hacked, but he just had this hunch, and I had to um, trust that. And I had yeah. to also ask myself, do I want to um, take my pain early or defer it for later? And what I mean yeah. by that is to the extent that I could ignore the problem or maybe pretend it hadn't happened, or just try and clean it up in a quiet and secure way. You know, um, fraud has a way of being traced back to some origin or some common point. Yeah. And I would be jeopardizing um, my customers and their their customers and ultimately be liable in the future for reasons I couldn't predict. So it felt horrible to have to go back and say, hey, we've really screwed up. But I didn't know another way to do that and, and sort of get up in the morning without, like I said, I want, I want to take my pain early <laughs> mm -hmm. rather than kick it down for a future, yeah. a future unknown. And so I did call Visa the next morning and explain what had happened. And, of course, they were um, unhappy and to yeah. the point as to what I would do next. They sent me the names of security consulting companies that I would hire to investigate at my own cost, independent of my team. I found myself on conference calls with with several consultants billing, you know, $250 an hour, each of them, while I was trying to grapple with explaining and working this out. So, you know, it ended up being an um, opportunity to try and not freak out everyone involved, not including my employees. You know, how, how, do I, how do I call my customer, an e-commerce business owner, and tell them that now they are potentially liable for a quarter million dollars per infraction for the mm. mistakes that I had made and not attending to the last details of the of the encryption on the backup servers in our backup environment. Um, how do I call those customers and say, and, you know, we're still going to keep sending you bills 
and mm. and don't leave because then I won't have any money to to get through this. You know, um, I think that is something that um, I, I was able to somehow, like I said, keep people from from feeling like the cause was lost or that that they needed to um, bail and and how we were able to make our way through that was probably just, you know, I think one of the most profound experiences in my business uh, the last 20 years. Wow. So how did you, uh, like, what, what was the response from your customers when you reached out and told them this news? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't, I didn't send them an email. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's a time and place for, for phone calls and, mm-hmm. And this is one of them. I didn't have a whole sort of philosophy about that at the time. I just, I think, instinct felt like this had to be a one-on-one conversation with the business yeah. owner, all of our customers. And it took me probably the rest of the week to get through those phone calls. And none of them were were comfortable. It was, it was awful. Yeah. The merchant processors would be fined by Visa and MasterCard, um, a quarter million dollars each. Those would accumulate and be passed down to the individual merchants who are my customers. Oh, wow. So our customers are looking at potentially millions of dollars in fines. Um, and those, wow. our customers would pass those down to us. So as the being at fault, we would, we would be accumulating sort of this cascading level of multiple millions. Mm. But I didn't have any um, money for attorneys. I didn't see any way of winning um, an argument where we had been at fault. So I think I, I decided that it would be the case that I would be the one who would have the best information and the most candid way of anyone in that process. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's, there's like banks like Wells Fargo. We, I had to talk to Wells Fargo cause they were one of the merchant processors. There were others. There was a whole collection, discover card, American express, MasterCard. You know, all of these different parties involved, our customers themselves, our consultants, the consultants that the credit card companies required that we hired, which are not the same. Um, our hosting company, which was Rackspace at the time. Um, I think it took, I think it became over the months and, and this unfolded over a year or two, that if I could maintain some sense of sort of attunement with, with people not trying to make excuses and not trying to cover things up, not trying to take responsibility beyond what was actually the case, not trying to explain things that I didn't have a definitive answer for, um, but just maintain sort of a goodwill mm-hmm. between all those people. Um, that's That was my only way I could see my way through it. Wow. Um, and, and I think that that was, was the answer in the end. Uh, mm. In the end, Discover Card called us a poster child for how to handle a data security breach. And oh, wow. what they meant was they they had seen that level of um, candor and a level of um, willingness to sort of say what we didn't know, to say what we did, and to be uh, sort of never never having someone make some sort of determination amongst themselves that, you know, we've got to bring them to court. We've got to bring this into a lawyer level of, of requiring and forcing people, but instead to lay that level of sort of that human rapport with one another. And I said that attunement with other people um, to get our way through that whole process. And at the end, we ended up um, compliant and broke. Oh, yeah. Wow. Think, well, it's amazing that you, you, you made it through even broke. I'm <laughs> listening to the story, hearing all of these, you know, millions of dollars in fines and things. And I'm, I'm thinking, how can you possibly survive that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> in the you end. you did. No fines were ultimately levied. Ultimately, the fines were not applied. And that's how we survived it, because we managed to basically, you know, go from one personal relationship to the next um, Mm. without ever, you know, without ever being fined. So I ended up broke. Uh, Our business was we had customers that stayed with us. We increased our prices dramatically. They still stayed with us, most of them. And at the same time, I was um, 
in the midst of going through a rewrite of our platform, we were looking to kind of overhaul it and build it up for the next level. There was a new company called Shopify just on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a company called Magento, which was gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, of course, they're big names today. Mm-hmm. And I think over the next year or two, it became clear that I just uh, had had sort of run out of steam. I didn't know how mm-hmm. to keep and sort of rebuild that company while also keeping married. I, I was married with four yeah. kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so with four children and and my desire to keep my marriage, I uh, I ultimately, uh, a couple years later, wound that e-commerce platform down and migrated all of our customers off to different platforms mm. uh, like Magento or others. And that sort of chapter closed um, yeah, in terms yeah. of running a software as a service company. Wow, that is that is an incredible story, um, and I, man, uh, it, I'm I'm sure you you I'm like you were tested with fire, you know, and 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 you you um you're able to keep it together. I'm I'm just imagining the like, I'm I'm sort of feeling it, trying to put myself in that place, like my stomach getting tight, my chest getting tight, just feeling, oh man, like I don't know how I could make my way through that but that's 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 well, i tell you that first phone call that night i i dropped to my knees i can see it distinctly in my my mm. basement living room i i hung up the phone and i dropped to my knees and i just i mean it just feels like um yesterday but you know i just sort of pounded my fists into the carpet thinking mm. no you know, like i just wanted it to like go back no like wow. i wanted to rewind 10 minutes you know or rewind a year and like make different choices Mm. Uh, it's such a horrible feeling of knowing that something that I chose, you know, to sort of avoid or not deal with directly came back to hit me. Uh, yeah. But I think that also I, I pushed my way through that and had this sense of um, can do kind of like we're going to make it. And it only though, I think even 10 years after that, before I was really able to look back and and understand how I came out of that experience, I think um, a little bit frozen, like a little bit like on the one hand, I had this sense of prevailing, mm-hmm. but it was also a sense of being a little bit frozen. What I mean by that is um, to really feel the grief of having a, you know my my big sort of software dream company um, fall apart, but also to feel like I'd made so many promises to customers. That, that I had to let them down on. I felt like I let my employees mm. down. Um, I ended up moving on to just, just consulting after all the customers were migrated off to different e-commerce platforms. I kept the handful of customers that were my favorite and I could fucking like really help as a consultant and continue to work in the e-commerce business. But I also felt like that frozenness had kept me from really um, expanding again with the next thing as an entrepreneur. Mm. I think being an entrepreneur is something that so much of it is an emotional dialogue yeah with yourself oh yeah um and i think i wanted to sort of like a little bit hunker down or try and not put myself in such a vulnerable position for several years it took me many years to kind of come back and even realize how i kind of shut down mm. i think because wow. of the the intensity of what yeah. um i didn't want to find myself in that kind of intensity where I perhaps felt like I was not keeping a promise that I'd made to to, to employees, to customers, to whomever. Um, only mm-hmm. in years, you know, only just, you know, in the recent years has that become clearer, and I think also enabled me to sort of plan the next the next business that I'll create and feel like I have more confidence to go to go back and mm-hmm. um, put myself into that position of making promises bigger promises, you know, building a bigger team, coming back and creating the next new thing. Yeah. So um, what were some of those uh, lessons learned or how, how have you translated that experience into, um, you know, what you're doing now or what you've, what you've built after that? Sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I use that word, attunement or trying to find ways to, to have a rapport with people where there's a sense of um, a trusted relationship. And that, even just how I was able to maintain that with my customers over the years, 
has has become this sort of theme that comes back to me. Um, and today, we're doing a lot of training of people's customer service teams and customer facing teams and businesses where mm. you have to deal with customers who might be upset. And honestly, yeah. we're, we're sort of in some ways <laughs> um, focusing on helping those businesses that that how to deal with angry customers. Yeah. How to talk to them, um, how to find not just empathy, but a kind of um, attached sort of connection. And that shows up in phone calls with customer service contact centers. It shows up in emails to a help desk when people reply back with questions or problems. Um, it shows up in um, the kind of email marketing and marketing techniques that you use and how you reach out and communicate with people. So I think it's um, so much of our work today is really with with the kind of language and the ways that, that you communicate that um, doesn't just go for trying to, um, how should I say this? Sometimes there's a, there's a phrase I've heard called tricky marketing, where you can get someone to take some action if you put, say, a false sense of urgency or a false sort of sense of scarcity or some way mm. of like trying to get them to the next step to make the next buy. Yeah. Um, and so much of that comes back to bite the people in the customer service department who have to deal with people who might feel slightly tricked. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what's interesting to me today is how do we apply all these different online tools we have? We can we can observe who's on our website, you know, whether they realize it or not. We can observe who opens our email marketing messages. We can have this sort of surveillance of personalized interactions and so much going mm -hmm. on. Um, but how do we get past that technological edge of surveillance and bring it to a point where there's, um, I think that word attunement is a good one, where there's a, it's a connection that kind of goes both ways. We're both giving and receiving. There's a level of trust and a level mm -hmm. of loyalty that comes about from that. And I think that loyalty is really where it comes down to for e-commerce businesses today. How do you find someone who doesn't just buy once mm -hmm. and then go away? You know, it's, it's cost so much to acquire a customer online. You have to pay for your traffic and your clicks and your all this stuff. Once you have that first purchase, it's so important to think, how do we design our systems and our level of communication so that they come back and buy a second time? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and as you're talking, you know, that I'm, I'm thinking about how you, you mentioned this is sort of was your approach with your, your customers back then and and you did that's you, you know maybe you made some mistakes that got you to that point but it was that focus on you, this attunement with your customer with the the payment processors with visa mastercard that got you through that and not only that you said discover uh, mentioned you as the poster child of how to handle this so you mentioned you're talking about how you're you're using what you've learned in through this experience to apply to how we handle customer service and that customer relationship. So may, maybe talk a little bit about what what you are doing. What are some of the strategies? How do you go about uh, building that relationship so that the customer doesn't just come and purchase once? you actually establish that relationship and continue um, serving them on to, in through the future. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I think if someone's looking to, to take their e-commerce to the next level, if that's um, what we're talking about, there's, there's such an opportunity, I think, around email today. And if that was one thing that people could give attention to, I think that'd be worth, um, worth all the spare effort they can give it. Mm. And, and by that, I mean that direct relationship where they can have something that is responsive, something that's responsive to what people are doing as shoppers. And what I mean by that is if you think about email as something that typically think of as a newsletter, you know, you send out every so often some sort of update about your business, that can represent sort of a, a rhythm that you introduce. You know, one of the best books I think I'd read um, was called Rockefeller's Habits. And, mm. and it was essentially about building rhythms into your business, the things that happen on a consistent basis. Some happen 
Um, and a slow rhythm, somehow is a fast, there's a repetitive sort of regularity to that. And so newsletter represents one of those rhythms that should show up. But I think that with email and email marketing in particular today, we have so much awareness of when people can make a purchase or they start to add things to the shopping cart or they come back to the website or they, or they don't make a purchase after so many months. That, that introduce, introduces a chance to have something interrupt that pattern or interrupt that rhythm. And mm-hmm. so I think if there is um, you know, people thinking about ways to, to grow the e-commerce business today, I would encourage the development of what we call an email flow. Some people call it an autoresponder or a sequence, uh, depending on what platform you're using, um, a campaign if you're using Drip, for example, a flow if you're using Klaviyo. And these are sort of a couple of messages that are triggered by the sh- shopper taking some action or some inaction. And you sort of bring people into a series of messages that um, that is appropriate to whatever's just happened. So like a mm-hmm. newsletter is one size fits all. It's a broadcast. Right. Um, we're going to head, you know, if we head into a holiday season, there's going to be this increased tempo. And maybe there's a, you know, a sort of ascending levels of discounts and urgency. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how do you reach out to someone who, who just ordered for the third time and acknowledge that directly? Mm-hmm. How do you reach out to someone who hasn't, hasn't ordered in nine months going on 12 and, and acknowledge that? Um, and these are ways, I think, of it, it's, I'm talking about what are essentially automated processes, so systems using that are technology-driven automations. But I'm also saying going that the attitude of attunement, how do we recognize where people are at and then speak to them directly in that situation? And how do we invite them to interact with us back and forth? One of the, one of the best things that you can do is, is to invite someone to hit reply to an email marketing message and answer a particular question or explain something, mm-hmm. or give feedback on something. Um, it's different than sending someone to a survey. It's, yeah. it's you know, that, that back and forth dialogue. Uh, we do that a lot also with SMS these days. It's amazing, mm. you know, how much people will, will interact in a mobile device with an SMS message. Um, and so I think that that opportunity for for companies trying to sort of build that relationship over the long term is once someone visits your website and they get on the newsletter list, there's something else that should happen when that person does what you want them to do or doesn't do what you want them to do after some period of time. And that's that kind of attunement to their actual circumstances. Um, and email is such a powerful way today. Even, I mean, it's, in some ways I keep seeing people think that email is going to go away or be replaced by the next new thing. Even like Facebook Messenger and chatbots, I mean, I hear a lot about, and we've got um, experience working with those things. But um, for a business trying to go to the next level, to rely on the power of their email list, I think, is one of the most important things I could encourage. Yeah. that. Um, so what are some of the things that you, uh, can you give some examples of what you might do um, to establish that um, sort of, you know, respond to what's just happened or what's just not happened uh, on the website or through purchase on the shopping cart? Sure. I mean, a, a company that, that I've worked with for going on, 16 years, 17 years, a company called Red Ox. And Red Ox, R-E-D-O-X-X.com, has um, promotions that are going on with a particular uh, market niche that they serve, which is called Overland. Um, Overlanders are people who drive their their trucks and 4x4 vehicles out of the way and they get stuck and they go camping and they have adventures. Um, And we have special promotions going on in different parts, um, different websites, different traffic building techniques that when those visitors come to the website they're invited to a special opt-in a special visual that reaffirms the connection to what they they love and know which is outdoor um, camping and trucks and once they they opt in they're sent a series of messages that's appropriate to introducing um, not just the products that are appropriate for them but articles blog posts that show this con- this company has credibility in your world and your and your sort of hobby so to speak mm-hmm. um, and and if they make a purchase okay great they're, they're on um but we're going to follow up with them 
and acknowledge that with a couple of messages that introduce them how the product can be best used. And then if they if they don't make a purchase, we'll come up with a couple of messages that are more about things that maybe have caused them to hesitate. And so mm-hmm. we build up a series of flows or sequences that are appropriate to sort of the journey that one person makes from the time they first come from a banner ad or somewhere else on some overlanding website to the Redox.com e-commerce store um, that tries to acknowledge, we know where you came from, we know what you're interested in, we see what you've um, been doing and are inviting you to take the next simplest step with us as you know as a company and to build that trust um, you know over months and months. Mm. And this is something that you can apply to other other niche industries. I mean, this company, Redox, also sells to the railroad engineers. How about that for mm. a niche? Wow. <laughs> railroad engineers have certain needs for, um, for, for baggage, for luggage, um, for gear. And there's opportunities to, again, um, speak directly to that kind of niche. And so how do you find your, your segments and your niches within your list and speak to them appropriately, both when traffic comes to your site and when your emails go out to those people? Mm. And are you using Clavio for most of this sort of um, intelligence and flow and segmenting? Certainly for companies that are on Shopify. Uh, there's such a great integration between those two platforms that it makes a lot of sense to do it um, when they're using Shopify. Um, but other tools like Drip is certainly capable um, as well. And um, I think it's less important, the tool these days, as long as you can have the awareness of someone's buying history and tap mm-hmm. into that past um, purchase history or the absence of it and to know that they haven't bought and to connect those dots to get them the right series of messages. Mm. Yeah. So um, you mentioned before uh, t- um, Amazon sellers and how how it's important to um, start building your brand in this connection with your customers. Now, how would you suggest Amazon sellers who who have not really gone this route yet, uh, start to start to build that relationship? Well, I think that there's certainly needs to be a place of their own where there's an e-commerce store that they do own. And selling on Amazon would be just um, one aspect of their business. Because of Amazon's sort of just extraordinary momentum and velocity, it could be that they find that they're that Amazon continues to be their largest sales channel. But I think that to the extent they can start to develop their own, say, Shopify e-commerce website or some other tool um, to power their shopping cart, there's, you know, that just needs to be, I think, an opportunity for them to grow as a fraction of all the sales that they take. Um, and, and to do that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of attempts or techniques to try and shift people to come back and buy from them a second time directly through the e-commerce store rather than going back to Amazon. Uh, that's that's always a challenge, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know I hear a lot about this on a lot of a lot of people in the in the space talk about. There's that fear of being an Amazon seller, where the the bigger you get, the harder you you can fall if they decide to change something right away. So people are really taking a hard look at. Um, you know whether it's trying to bring people to their own uh, Shopify store or whatever, or whether it's simply building that relationship. And I, I, I know I've, I have heard people talking about um, you know building relationship with the audience through social media, and then then they even sending them to Amazon for purchases using Amazon as the sales channel. But um, uh, but hold, you know, establishing that relationship through other uh, methods. What what do you think about that? Um, or how would you suggest uh, somebody who is selling on Amazon and has not really um, started that sort of um, audience building? Uh, how would you suggest they go about that? Well, sure. I think I think it depends a little bit on how sophisticated they are today, um, because you know how much their team is capable of of keeping up with. Sometimes for an Amazon seller, the most important thing is just prompt shipment, you know, mm-hmm. and and processing orders with accuracy and promptness. 
mm-hmm. if they haven't got that down, I think that the rest of this is probably things they should leave for later. Mm-hmm. Because the expectations for the Amazon shopper is so high. I think Amazon's tolerances for customer service problems is so low. So I think mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, where are you in your business? Um, if you want to go to the next level, beyond the prompt and accurate order fulfillment level, mm-hmm. then that's where I think you're, you're talking about building an audience. And to the extent people can go to a Facebook page or learn about you through social media stuff, um, I can see that there's a place for it, but I would always look at it as being more of a one-way direction. I would always want visitors to come from a social media page to our own website and and not the other way around. So, we, I mean, sometimes we don't even link to the social media channels of a brand mm. from its own e-commerce website. So if you start out on YouTube or Facebook, you, you come towards the business and its e-commerce site. Um, you don't go from the e-commerce business back to social media. Mm-hmm. And ideally, perhaps the most important thing of any visitor to an e-commerce website is to give them a good enough reason to share their email address with you. Mm-hmm. And from there, the relationship can really begin because um, when it's mediated by Facebook, even what you push to your Facebook page is seen by you know a small fraction of your followers and fans. Uh, Facebook's in charge of determining how many of your fans even see that, and it's a pretty small fraction these days. Mm-hmm. So that's why I bring back to the email address and that, that one-on-one relationship is really foundational at the level of email yeah and i know a lot of people even a lot of people who are doing well um even in my store i never gave a great reason to to leave that email address um you know it might be a discount um but i imagine you are talking about beyond just 10 percent off your first order sort of thing what uh what are some of the strategies or uh what do you look at when giving people a good reason to leave their email address? I think you have to meet people with where they are in their use of your product and what what you know about them and their lifestyle because of them using your product. And you have to sort of work backwards from an understanding of, okay, if they're these kinds of people with these kinds of lifestyle activities, um, given what we know about our product being a part of that lifestyle, um, where do we start to add some more information or help them see or understand something that is beyond a discount? And so, for example, um, for example, I mentioned this company, Redox, and, and having traffic come to the e-commerce store and invite them to opt in in a way that's specific for this niche of people who like overlanding, which is this outdoor camping, 4x4, truck driving hobby. And, and one thing that those people have to do every time they go out in the wilderness is cook. Mm-hmm. It's part of, you know, it's, it's car camping, but in a sort of some ways a, an over-the-top way. And so we're developing a video series on how to do that well. How do you pack for good food when you're out on an adventure in an overland sort of 4 by 4 truck? And how do you keep track of your kitchen, your, your sort of your portable kitchen? Um, and that video series will also be turned into some PDF uh, checklists and, um, and guides and packing lists and so forth. Mm. Um, we happen to sell a luggage that would be a great container for sort of your portable kitchen and other, other tools that come with the cooking process. And so that would be a reason someone would give an email address is yeah. to be be into, you know, learning about that kind of thing. And so it turns out to, you know, yield videos and um, documents and emails and things that go beyond the 10% off that would be, you know, typical. Very cool. So, that, yeah, that. <clears throat> so for you, you know, for someone else, mm-hmm. what, is the, what is the example that their customers find themselves in some circumstance or situation? Um, you know, and, and there's a whole, I want to say, another conversation we could have about mm-hmm. alternatives to discounting. Yeah. Because that's, you know, I have a whole course on that subject, actually. So <laughs> in some ways, it's a different conversation. But it, I think um, being able to get beyond a discount um, 
is a whole other way of bringing resilience and sort of sustainability to your business um, uh-huh. and, and super important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing over with uh, eBusiness Coach? Well, I mean, in some respects, we've, we've been talking about it. Um, yeah. These kinds of things is, is kind of the work that, uh, that I do. I think if people are interested in um, learning more also, you know, I write at patrickpittman.com, and that's a good place to keep up with what's going on and even new businesses that we're creating in the future. So I think patrickpittman.com is a great place. Um, and if, if anyone's in Austin, Texas, that's where I, I live these days, and I'm always up for, for meeting people and, and doing fun things together in Austin. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Patrick, I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your story. This has been really, it's, it's a fascinating journey. And, and thank you for, for being so open. Uh, I know that um, a lot of people can really resonate with, with the ups and downs of the journey. And, um, and, and it's not, some of the low moments are not very often talked about. So I appreciate you sharing that um, and, and what you've learned and how you've applied those lessons to what you're doing now. So thank you. Well, I appreciate your interest, Isaac. It's been glad to talk with you about it. Big thanks to Patrick for sharing his story with us and for being so open about these low moments. You know, most of us don't want to share that kind of stuff. Most of us would like to put ourselves out into the world as if we've got it all together. But secretly, we're a mess of insecurities. I love Patrick's message because at some point, we're all going to go through something. So if you're going through something right now that you're struggling with, just know that if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to come through. And sometime down the road, you might look back and discover that that's what prepared you for greatness. This is a message that's so important and so impactful that we all need to hear it. So I want you to think of one friend right now who is either going through some struggles or maybe doesn't quite know how they're going to make it to the next level. And I want you to share this message with that friend. And if you could use just a little bit more encouragement right now, I suggest you go back and listen to episode three with Ronnie Teja, where he talks about how he went through some really tough times. Or, if you want to find out what it's like during the middle of these struggles, go back and listen to episode 6 with Saxon Funk. And now, it's time for... The Review is Right! This is the part of the show where you, as the listener, get to play along with me. For our first three months, we are giving away a $50 Amazon gift card to a lucky winner. And this is the last month we're doing this for at least a while. So if you've ever listened to this and you thought, oh, I should do that. Well, this may be your last chance. So if that's you, I've got one thing to say to you. Stop what you're doing! If you're driving, pull over to the side of the road. If you're running or walking, just stop, pull your phone out of your pocket, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, then email the screenshot to me at info at nextlevelecommerce.co. You're running out of time, so do it now, and good luck. Well, that may be the end of this episode, but the story is not over. Great success may come from pain and failure, but you're not going to go out looking for failure, are you? Next week, we have another entrepreneur's story of overcoming challenges and how you can avoid many of the common pitfalls. You don't want to miss that. Next time on Next Level E-Commerce. It's like you're in a in a different universe. Everything is different, especially in the beginning, you don't understand anything. The work vibe, the energy in Beijing is is absolutely insane. You really feel like you're in the center of the universe. How do you keep yourself going when you feel like you're not getting where you want to go? 
that roller coaster is killing honestly nobody really understands what you're trying to achieve why you're trying to do certain things that frustration that leads to so much doubt like wait is yeah. what i'm doing actually valuable and i keep trying yeah learn from what doesn't work change something try again but holy crap what happens when you sell a ton and you need to order twice as many you're running out of money right what you're describing is the success the curse of success yeah as lethal as it is as the, the worst case prevention is a lot better and a lot cheaper than curing a problem yeah and it makes the emotional roller coaster less as well thank you for listening to next level e-commerce be sure to subscribe so you won't miss out on the next story